Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Diana Malencio, partner at XRC Labs. The New York-based venture fund and startup accelerator is focused on retail technology and consumer goods with companies including body brand Billy and bag brand Kara in its portfolio. I wanted to ask Diana what brands and founders today are worth getting behind and what she perceives is the future of retail tech. Welcome, Diana. Thanks, Jill, for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Walk me through your background before we get to all XRC Labs does. Um, How long have you been with the company? So I've been with the company for two years now. Before that, I started my career on Wall Street. Um, So I spent the first 10 years of my career investing in consumer retail and healthcare. I then founded a couple of companies, which the second one um, was invested by XRC. And then I ran a different venture fund before I joined XRC as a partner in 2020. Um, no, 2021. Sorry, it's um, it's only been a year, but it feels like double the time um, because it goes so fast. I'm sure. So you were already familiar with XRC Labs business model. Walk us through it. Um, did I cover the, the territory? Um, an accelerator, um, an investment arm. Um, does that sum it up? Yeah, that's a good summary. I think people best know know us as the accelerator because it started in 2015, but we've since added two other funds. We have the XRC Opportunity Fund, where we invest in enterprise SaaS companies in the retail technology space. And then we have a consumer-focused fund where I am looking into things um, in fashion and and beauty products as well interesting. Is there more excitement in your in your eyes and in, in the fashion space or in the beauty space right now? It's so interesting because, you know, when we launched Glossy, it was like fashion, luxury, technology. Beauty wasn't even part of the equation. Um, and then beauty became so accelerated. And now to me, I don't know, fashion's pretty darn hot. <laughs> so my perspective is that beauty is hotter. Um, and there's a few reasons for that. It's a bit recession-proof. Some people call it the lipstick effect, um, where even in a downturn, maybe you can't afford that fancy new dress, but to feel you know, better about what's happening in the world, what's happening with you, you will buy that, that lipstick um, to, elevate, to elevate your look. And then from you know, a, a nerdy um, valuation perspective, the multiples from for beauty companies far exceed that typically of apparel companies. Well, I want to dig into each kind of area and what you're seeing and what's exciting to you. Um, but I have to ask kind of your latest, do you call it accelerate accelerator group, accelerator, what do we call them here? <laughs> we call them cohort. Um, cohort. We are in our 14th cohort, um, which we will be announcing shortly. Um, so you'll have to tune in to our social media um, to learn about the 14 amazing companies that we have in our, in cohort 14. So how do they become part of this cohort? Where do they come from, these founders? Yeah, it's a combination of different sources. Um, Sometimes we are outbound and we approach companies at conferences. Maybe we see them on our social media. 
you know, if you're a beauty investor, for example, and you're on your phone all the time, I just get um, inundated with new emerging beauty companies. And I've, I've looked at well over 600 of them. Um, subsequently, you could also apply through our website, xrclabs.com, or often it's a referral either from a founder that is in the portfolio or our investor network. Yeah. Are there trends that you've been seeing recently in terms of the types of businesses that these founders are bringing to market um, that really kind of are an answer to to the shifting consumer behavior or um, what we've seen in the last uh, two plus years? Um, yeah. Where is everyone? Is there a a, a commonality, whether it's it is the, those that are in your cohort or even just um, the brands that are coming across your your table across your desk. I think consumers are demanding sustainability and clean. So that is no longer something that is considered innovative, but rather table stakes. So if you look at beauty companies that are coming out these days it's almost necessary that it starts with that clean first um, value proposition. And then similarly on the apparel side, that sustainability um, thread running across the, the company. So I think those are two emerging trends, both on the fashion and the beauty side that we're seeing in every company that we're looking at. Being a founder, a brand founder, a company founder yourself, um, do you, I guess, use a unique lens when looking at founders? I hear a lot. Um, sometimes the the founder um, more clinches the sale or the investment um, than the brand itself. It's that passionate person. Um, yeah. Having come from that background, what do you look for? Founders are extremely important, especially for early stage investments, largely because what the company is today is very likely not what the company is a month, two months, three months down the line. Um, so I would say in terms of what I look for, I like founders with domain expertise. Um, so for example, if you are tackling a science-based beauty company, or if you are tackling um, an athleisure or apparel company, um, with a specific demographic in mind, from my eyes, it is helpful to have an innate understanding of the nuances of what that consumer demands. So first is domain expertise. Um, and then secondly, it's, it's tenacity, it's passion. It is really hard to be an entrepreneur, especially these days when funding takes so much longer, it is so much harder and the dollars go to fewer companies. And so to really be able to live through the lows, you have to be really passionate about what you're doing. Well, from founders, we hear a lot. They're like uh, looking for um, white space and just wondering, um, you've dealt, uh, having grown a brand or grown a company, I'm sure you've dealt with investors all the time or you you have experience in that world. Did you kind of see, I guess, almost a white space in the field you're in now in terms of how you would like to work with an accelerator or an investor and and where you see yeah the value that you're giving founders I guess when you when you kind of flip roles yeah I would say the biggest learning lesson from being a founder is ultimately that founders know best 
is how I like to think about it. Wherein I think a lot of VCs sit in on these meetings and ask sometimes asinine questions about, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? If you're a startup founder, you are living, living that company. You are, you're dreaming about it. And so, yes, I have thought about that um, months ago. And this is why I am not going that route, but rather going, you know, this other route that, that is best for my company. So first it's that lens that I don't know better than someone that is living, breathing, dreaming it on a daily basis. And then subsequently, I do look at where the founder's starting point is. For example, underrepresented founders like black and brown founders often do not have the ability to raise a friends and family round. Um, And if you look at the data of companies getting funding, most companies have raised, um, you know, around a million dollars of quote unquote friends and family. And so I do look at, okay, what resources were available to these founders to get them to where they are today? But if I provided them with similar resources, can they also break out and achieve similarly great results? Because I don't think you do anyone favors by creating different standards for different founders. Yeah, I love that. Does XRC Labs, do you have um, like a diversified portfolio? Is that a goal moving forward in terms of the founders? It's something that's happened naturally. I think it's a business imperative to invest in underrepresented founders only because so much about the... um, for example, in beauty and apparel, so much of the untapped opportunity is in those areas like, for example, textured hair products um, or more inclusive apparel lines for sizes that go beyond the standard sizing um, in, in today's market. It's, it is a huge opportunity. So for me, it's not a a marketing ploy or something that we're actively trying to skew our demographics for, but rather one that is, that is grounded in the fact that there is huge opportunity in investing in these type of founders. Who makes up XRC Labs? Um, Again, a founder, a woman that maybe comes and she sees you in the room is probably like, like that's refreshing. (laughs) It's not, you know, a room of dudes, basically, but um, is it is it uh, is that also um diversified or um I don't I don't I don't want to say like how do you make it a friendly environment for a, for a more diverse diverse um, group of founders, but um how would you describe that as it is or maybe how how it's headed toward? Are you talking about the team specifically at the organization? Yeah, exactly, and not necessarily in terms of diversity, but just yeah, who who, who works at XRC Labs? Is it a large company? Yeah, so we have, I think, seventeen full time employees at last count, and and growing, and that's because since twenty fifteen we went from one fund to two funds to three funds. We've multiplied our assets under management. So we have a much larger team than when we started in 2015. If you look at the partner base, we have two male partners and two female partners. And I think some of that is largely due to the industries in which we invest, 
retail, consumer, apparel, beauty. Um, I think women naturally gravitate towards that. But at the end of the day, we are just, I believe, hiring the best talent there is out there to support the team. And it just so happens to be a diverse one. Well, Series A, post-seed, this is kind of your happy space. Yes. Um, <laughs> is that like, that's where you focus? What happens What happens from there? Um, series B, you're just, not, you're not playing in, you're on to the next company. Yes. So with our pre-seed accelerator, we are the first institutional check-in. Often companies can be pre-product, um, but maybe they're in the product development phase. And we have a lot of belief in the team and the initial prototype of that product. So for example, with a company called Barb, um, which addresses a white space with regards to folks with short hair, um, they were very early in their trajectory when we invested. We invested in Billy and Terra Cafe before they went out to market. And both of those, the, the thesis was around the founder and their approach to that product and that market. So for the accelerator, we invest in pre-seed. With the opportunity fund and our consumer fund, we invest after we see a little bit more traction, after we see that they have found what we call product market fit. And so you could technically label that as, you know, post-seed to Series A. Series B is really growth growth capital. And while we have done some follow-on investments in some of our companies that are, that are Series B, predominantly we're playing in the pre-seed to Series A space. Tell me a little bit about that support that the accelerator would provide a founder. What, and again, if that's changed as, as the landscape's changed in the last couple of years. Yeah, I think our two strengths as an organization is in business development in the industries in which we invest, retail and consumer and consumer healthcare and fundraising. And so when a company is in the portfolio, one of the first things we do, at least on the accelerator side, is to do a business audit to identify like what the weak points are what metrics should be their North Star in order to enable them to raise um, their next round of institutional funding. And we provide a plethora of resources. We have a growth team. We have an excellent PR team. Um, and then we have partners that are very involved in terms of business development strategy, just general business strategy, and fundraising. In fact, our most recent, I don't know if hire is the right word, but we recently onboarded a senior advisor and venture partner um, who is Andrew Ross, who was formerly the head of strategy and corporate development at Estee Lauder Companies. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Looking back, do you have, it doesn't have to be the ultimate single anyone out success story, but talk to me about a success story. Um, you did mention a few like Billy and and others, but um, yeah, can you tell me about any, any more recent or anything that you're proud of recently? Well, our most recent exit was Billy. So Billy's Razors was recently acquired by um, Edgewell Personal Care for $310 million. We were the first institutional check, the second institutional check. 
long before they even went to market. They just had a manufacturing contract that we thought was valuable and that the founders were outstanding. Um, and interestingly, from a branding perspective, they were the first razor company to actually showcase what real shaving is like, meaning that there was hair in their advertisements. If you look at sort of pre-Billy razor company advertising, it was like these people already had hairless legs. Why do you even need a razor if you have no hair? And what was revolutionary about Billy's advertising is that, no, let us depict what it really what it really looks like, in addition to the fact that, again, the founders were stellar and they could execute. For sure. Well, I some lesser known, I guess, brands you're working with, um, which I'm familiar with, um, just having spoken with folks at your company, but like Barb, like you mentioned, um, Nudie Systems, which I thought was really unique. Um, in terms of I guess like they're totally different, different world. But anyway, are you shifting? I'm hearing a shift away from categories that are m- maybe more considered like discretionary spending for for the consumer. Um, has that has that piv- changed at all for you? Um, and anyway, I'll come back to nudie because I think it's so cool. But go ahead. Yeah, I think that has shifted for investors in general. There's been a shift away from consumer consumer products to SaaS companies, largely because the exits are so much larger, the exit multiples are so much larger on enterprise software versus direct-to-consumer products. That said, I do think there is still a lot of white space left because there's a lot of people that are not being served by the current products that are being sold at Target and Sephora. Um, So I remain very excited about the beauty space, I remain very excited about products that are targeting a demographic that's been underserved, whether that's fashion or at-home fitness or home care. Um, There are lots of areas within consumer that I still remain very excited about. Speaking of nudie, excited about like undergarments, lingerie, shapewear, like is it overcrowded at this point? Like, do you think that founders or investors are maybe rushing to this space because it's sexy right now? Or anyway, I, I in my eyes, everything's shape labeled shapewear right now. That isn't necessarily shapewear just because it's having a moment. But um, anyway, how would you like, I guess, deal with, with an area such as that? Um, do you more so, anyway, is that what it takes to, to make a go of it in your eyes? Something that's not entirely new. Yeah, so I would say I'm excited about any company that can engage their consumers organically. What VCs are now leery about with product companies are when we see a company deck where 80% of the use of proceeds are in performance marketing. And so I think that if on the flip side, the majority of your sales say 80% or more, are coming because you've developed a community, a following, highly engaged consumers, then it doesn't necessarily have to have this IP mode because clearly the brand is speaking and connecting with their customers. And so on the shapewear side, Nudie is a great example. Skims is, is another one. Um, is where the founders are are really engaging their their communities. 
um, and creating a lot of organic sales versus performance marketing. Yes such a thing, the, the importance of product. Um, it's interesting because th- how do you look at it as somebody who may, you know, pre-product, you're making investments, um, you know, it's to come, but maybe you have it, you know, touch felt the proof is not in the pudding in, in, in any way. Um, just thinking, I just talked to the founder who wanted to kind of, I don't know, bounce some ideas off of me, a budding founder. Um, and it was, and it was a beautiful deck. And, and I was like, what about the product? And they were like, well, after the investment, then I'll feel, um, I guess, I know I'll feel better about what I'm putting out to market basically because they they didn't have, you know, the resources to to make it what they wanted just yet. What faith do you need to say, like, this is pre-product. We're going to put our money here because we believe in it. It just has to be a, a white space, a dynamic founder. Um, is this like a rare scenario? It is and it isn't because companies are launching on a daily basis. But we also, um, to my comment earlier, are proactive in certain areas that we think are fast growing. So we recently did some market research. What is the fastest growing consumer product category? It's actually the at-home beauty device market. And we are actively looking at companies to invest in in that space. Um, there's also a growing, growing income with regards to the Indian population and the Indian diaspora that is, that has a large part of their population in North America and Europe. So products that are catering towards that audience because of their rising income and the, their global reach is something that is also attractive. So it, it is a, it's a combination of, Founders coming to us with a white space that they have identified um, or perhaps a different approach to a stagnant industry or consumer product. And then it's also our own market research telling us that, wait, since COVID, no one's going to the spa anymore. No one's going um, to get treatments. They're trying to solve this on their own at home. We have a similar view of healthcare where during COVID, people couldn't go to their doctor's office, but there is actually a lot of things that they can diagnose and treat at home. And so it's a confluence of founders coming inbound to us and us going outbound based on the market research that we've done. That makes great sense. Let's nerd it out and talk retail tech because yes. to me, like I think people have, there's like a, a very narrow idea of what that means, whether that's, you know, including in-store technology, but like that to me is almost like could read depending on where people are going and doing it right as like gimmicky, almost like a wearable back in the day. But what is actually retail tech? Let's talk about the IRL in-store retail tech that that you have faith in, that you're maybe putting your dollars behind. Yes. So retail tech, firstly, is think about like the end to end consumer journey. So how does that product get to you? How do how do you view that product? How do you get the information about that product? How is the product being marketed to you? Um, So all of those components are considered retail tech. Another name you could use for it is commerce enablement. So that's the first question. Um, it's everything. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it's it's basically everything. Um, so it's wider than people think. Um, and by the way, we're one of the most active investors in that space. Um, with regards to retail technology, so our view is that there 
are too many stores and that the majority of goods will be sold online or in the natural environments that people find themselves. And so in terms of store technologies that we're excited about, it is about what are other ways retailers can leverage the in-store, the in-store experience to engage their consumers? Is it more like a showroom model or an experience? Because regardless of how much you push the consumer to make a purchase in-store, ultimately they have a store in the palm of their hands. Um, they have the information in the palm of their hands. So it's more about meeting customers wherever they are and then leveraging that IRL experience to truly make it an omni-channel experience. I think that I may be mistaken, but um, in terms of the e-commerce and the online shopping experience, I think that um, there have been some XRC Labs investments and maybe... um, Companies specializing in returns and potentially live streaming. I'm not sure, but where? Yes, uh, I'm right. Ding, ding, ding. Um, tell me yes. about what else. Um, what else is working to really, uh, again, I guess, bring the IRL experience online? If is that the the goal there, or even just about convenience? How, how would you describe where things are headed overall? I think where things are headed is that cons- that consumers that you and I can purchase a product anywhere and everywhere. So an investment that we made recently is a company called Boost, which is reimagining what the barcode is, where simply by texting a a number, you can have a full view of a website and make a purchase regardless of whether you are. So a use case for that specific company was they were selling Lakers jerseys on the Jumbotron at the Lakers stadium. And so text, you know, one, two, three, four to get your jersey. And then it was a one-click stop to get that Kobe jersey. Um, so that's that's one example. Live streaming is another where we were the first institutional investors in a company called Shop Shops. I mean, to me, the future is is the store everywhere, like a truly omni-channel experience. I think Lori Coulter from Somersault, she was trying to like put a name around it. She's like, it's not omni-channel. It's not this. It's just kind of like everywhere. <laughs> I was trying yeah. to come up with a catchy name that was going to sweep the nation, but I didn't. Anyway. We'll get there. I'm with you. It's so exciting. Um, gosh, next cohort. Any any sneak peeks? Any teasers of what we can expect? Um, what's going to come out of that? There's so many. Um, I'm trying to think. What is a sneak peek that doesn't give away anything? I mean, we continue to invest in consumer products. So reimagining high end personal care is an area where we've made a couple of investments in cohort 14. Reimagining again, more and more over the past few years, we've really doubled down on consumer healthcare, where that shift from the doctor's office to the home um, is something that we see that was accelerated by COVID, but that will gain more and more adoption, especially as people got used to it um, during the pandemic. So there are a couple investments in cohort 14 as it relates to consumer health care. 
There's personalization, on-demand products. That's a that's a good sneak peek. I'm challenging you. This is good. Gosh, speaking of like sustainability and clean and health and wellness, and like you said, the pandemic effect, like do you just think it's either something that's what consumers are interested in spending their money on? It's something that's either good for you or better than what else is out there, I guess. Is that kind of the moral of the story too? Yeah. Consumers have never been more aware aware of wellness and health than they have ever been. That's in part because of all the information that's available on, again, like the, on their mobile phones, but it's also slightly due to the pandemic, Um, you know, assessing their health, how can they, you know, increase longevity, all of those things, the perforation of the goops of the world, um, all of those things have contributed to the fact that wellness is here to stay and it's not a trend. You talked about performance marketing, marketing. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, are your brands really buzzing, whether they're graduates of the accelerator program or um, newbies in, to the market, how, how this has changed their approach to, to growth, how this, like, are there workarounds? Are there solves? Like, what are they doing? Um, they're kind of in a bind if that was really obviously where they were placing their bets and, and really relying. How would you describe how that's changed your your um, world? Yeah, so a few things. So from an acquisition perspective, um, strategics are now really leery of money losing companies. So they almost mandate at least a break-even um, profitability if they were to acquire a company. So no longer can you take your venture dollars and just dump it into the marketing for the sake of, you know, negative profitability. VC investors are are asking, I think, demanding that the majority of sales are organic. The answer for me, as I have observed with some of our very talented founders, is founder-generated content. So a good example is our investment in a company called Strix. Um, The CMO, John, creates weekly content on YouTube, on TikTok. He's gone viral several times. um, And it's really propelled the organic sales of the company. They've doubled the sales every single year just through content alone. And so to me, what's compelling when I look at a product company is how they are getting that growth number to continue. Um, and if the answer is performance marketing, ugh, I it's, it's really something that a lot of VCs are, I think, shying away from. You are really backing up what I told this founder recently. <laughs> I was like, it comes down to three things. I was acting, putting myself in your shoes, and I was like profitability product. I didn't say the the good for you. I, it was quality, but the the good has got to be there. Community. We, we touched on this a bit, but organic sales, I think that kind of plays into that. Um, is that kind of where it's at? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Up? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think a, a highly engaged, engaged community kind of speaks to that organic sales co- function. Um, I was talking to a company which we didn't end up investing in, but one of the, I thought, cool things that they were doing was for their, you know, first hundred, she put her first hundred or 200 customers 
on a WhatsApp group and she gives them free samples of new product launches and they help inform what gets launched moving forward. And so these customers feel like a part of the the company and they are really organically become like the the brand ambassadors for it. So I think leveraging ways, leveraging the community, um, leveraging yourself um, for for content, it also speaks to like an authenticity piece that I think is really important, especially for Gen Z focused products or services, um, I think is is really compelling. The last question, as everyone's talking about the investors pulling back, have you guys tightened your purse strings at all? Are you um, kind of waiting out and seeing where the recession goes? How would you describe your cadence or or even amount some, that you're putting out there? Um, has it been status quo or any changes there? We're still more, one of the more active investors in the spaces that we invest in. There is a real pullback that we saw beginning like end, end of May. In fact, a lot of my partner friends at other VCs, which I sh- which shall remain nameless, um, were like, "I'm I'm going on vacation. I don't want to price around in this type of environment. I'm going to let it shake out until the fall." So a lot of people really hit the pause button in the summer. Expectations for metrics and traction has certainly increased, and I think valuations have corrected to pre-pandemic levels. So it hasn't changed our activity, but it has been a more, from an investment side, allowed us to get in at more attractive valuations. But then the flip side of that is seeing some of our portfolio companies struggle to raise a priced round because the expectations have increased the length of time to fund has increased. There's none of that FOMO. Um, People are taking more time to do more work. So I think it is just a different, slightly more difficult environment um, now, and that will carry through the rest of the year. Right on. Well, we have a lot of founders that listen to this podcast. We'll just start off by saying it's not you. <laughs> if, you're, if you're struggling to get investment, um, understandable for sure. Oh my gosh. Well, Diana, thank you so much for being here today. This was so informative. So great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. If you liked this episode, be sure to share it with someone else you think would. Thanks for listening to the Glossy Podcast.